Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. The general election is two weeks away, and this election season, WUSF Public Media has been doing things a bit differently from other news media, focusing on the issues rather than the talking points, and listening to you. Later in the show, we're going to discuss some of the big issues that you told us are important, things like reproductive rights, the environment, housing, and inflation. First, though, we'll talk more about the aftermath of Hurricane Ian as southwest Florida continues the long process of recovery. For some insights into what the future may look like for the hardest-hit communities, I reached out to Bay County. Four years ago, the Panhandle took a direct hit from a Category 5 storm, Hurricane Michael. Donna Pilson is the Executive Director of Rebuild Bay County. The organisation is focused on the long-term recovery of the region, and Pilson helped steer the response effort of more than 70 non-profit and faith-based organisations. She says the initial focus was Hurricane Michael recovery, and that's still happening, but since then she's also helped connect residents with resources after other disasters, hurricanes, wildfires, and the pandemic. I spoke to her via Zoom. We've done a really good job in the recovery in that there are parts that have recovered very well, um, but some of our uh, lower income areas have not recovered as well. So four years later, we are still very much active in the recovery of um, those areas. How challenging has it been to get repairs done and, and get people you know, back to, to where they need to be in some of those hardest hit communities in places like Panama City? It's been a significant challenge. Um, and and I, I would attribute that to the fact that there are there are mul- multiple layers of issues. Um, so it's, uh, we have, uh, we were, we started off um, trying to assist those uh, residents that were not insured. Um, and then that, you know, we start, we had to look at those resident, residents that were underinsured. And many residents were left underinsured um, because we had contractor fraud. Um, there has been a lack of contractor labor in this area mm-hmm. for the extent of the damage that we took. Um, so you have those three issues. And then you put on on top of that issues like heirs' properties, where um, we had um, residents living in property for many years that have not been probated. Well, that slows the recovery process. That can That's a legal, uh, legal issue that can take, uh, sometimes it can take years to clear that up. And in, um, when you're talking about funding, recovery projects um, for on homes, you have to establish ownership. So those, that's been another uh, issue that's layered on top of the, the other ones that I've mentioned. And all of that on top of the challenge with affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had, at the time of the storm, uh, Bay County uh, had 70% of residents were uh, renters versus 30% homeowners, which makes a difference when you lose a lot of your rental properties. Um, so those renters have nowhere to go. And then after that, um, when those uh, rental, when the rental inventory became in- available, the prices were much higher. And so um, places that uh, residents were living prior to the storm were no longer affordable after the storm. And we continue to see that as well. Has that led to people just leaving 
Bay County or leaving the Panhandle altogether? Like, have you seen some kind of population flight since the hurricane? Yes. So immediately after the hurricane, we did see quite a quite a few people leave just because there was no, with the size of our, our county, there's just nowhere else to go. Um, some of your bigger cities, you can go to another part of the city that's not as hard hit. In Bay County, we did not have that. And so we did lose quite a few residents because of that, um, where they went away and stayed with family or just relocated. But that's not the case with everyone. Everyone can't afford to leave. But then again, not really afford to be able to stay as well as the prices continue to increase. We also, um, Florida, this area is, um, in the panhandle, is a desirable place, right? It's beautiful. The beaches are beautiful. We So we are still seeing new um, new people come in that may be more um, able to afford the rental rates and the housing prices. And so uh, it's, it's a layered issue that we have that has impacted the a speedy recovery for those that were here at the time of the storm. Mm-hmm. Financial assistance from the federal government after a disaster can take some time to arrive, right? What does that mean for the residents of Bay County and what do you think needs to change to make that process better or faster or more streamlined? Well, I think one of the um, biggest gains that we can get is the financial assistance for residents. So that's there's a difference between financial assistance for residents and those for your government for infrastructure. But the financial assistance for residents, I, I would not say has been very much delayed. What was delayed in this area was the case management services. And um, so it was a, and it took about a year to uh, get the um, the federally funded case management service online. What that does for us is it informs residents on what they need to do um, and informs their decisions uh, on their recovery. And what we saw was that immediately after the storm, because residents wanted to recover quickly, they made decisions that impacted their ability to be able to receive some of the, um, the federal assistance that was available because you get into duplication of uh, benefits issues and those type of things. So uh, case management services helps uh, step those residents through the process for recovery and on the ground early can prevent some of the um, decisions that were made early on that came back to bite them. What other advice would you have for the likes of Southwest Florida, which is you know starting the rebuild and recovery process from Hurricane Ian? But do the research. Make sure that you're dealing with vetted organizations, vetted contractors, and um, understand that recovery takes time. If uh, if there's an offer of something really quick and it sounds too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Be sure you read everything that you sign. Keep all of your documents, keep all of your receipts. Um, those things do come into play. There is typically assistance, um, funding assistance available for recovery, but your documentation has to be in order. Your banking statements, pull those things out. So um, keep a record of all that. Take pictures, take lots of pictures of your damage. Um, and if you can't, if you don't have a place to store your documents, take a picture, a screenshot of your documents and, and uh, maintain that on your phone. Those things will be needed um, later 
later down the road. What about advice you would give to somebody who's going to be in your situation overseeing some of the recovery efforts long term? Like, what have you learnt along the way that you wish you'd known at the start of this process for you? Well, understand that it's not a, that it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And the same advice that we give to uh, residents we, we take for ourselves, slow it down. Get your process in place so that when your residents come in that you are um, that you can explain the process. Do the research, uh, even as an organization, do the research, understand the resources that are out there so that you can kind of eliminate some of the frustration that the residents go through by being able to articulate the resources that are available, because not all resources are equal and not all resources are for everyone. Be flexible. It's very easy to say, no, we don't do this. But how do we get to or try to get to no, we don't have this or we don't do this at this time, but let's talk about it some more so we can figure out where we can guide you that you may be able to get that particular resource. So we have to be patient, we have to be flexible, and we have to do the research. Well, Donna, thanks so much for your uh, time and your insights. I appreciate it. No, thank you. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to be able to um, share from my perspective. You're listening to Florida Matters. Still to come, we'll talk about the issues that you told us are important to you as Election Day approaches. That conversation when we return. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. This election season, WUSF Public Media is doing things a little differently than other news media. We haven't been chasing down candidates and their talking points or getting into the weeds about political grandstanding or voter polls. Instead, we're focusing on the issues. And we've been listening to you. Over the past few months, hundreds of residents in the Greater Tampa Bay region filled out a simple form where they shared the issues most affecting them. It's not scientific. Instead, it was a chance to amplify the voices of people who don't usually have a voice in the media. We call it the Citizen's Agenda. A few of the people who completed the agenda aren't yet 18 and can't vote, but they're still thinking about the issues that will be informing their votes in future elections. Here's what we asked. What are the most important two or three issues that you hope the election might help change? Why are those important to you? And what do you wish candidates knew about your community or your life? Issues that people filling out the citizens' agenda said were important included the economy, inflation, climate change, gun violence, civil rights, democracy and voting access, and housing. The issue that emerged time and time again, particularly with respondents 18 to 29, most of whom are college students, was abortion and reproductive rights. We're joined now by a panel of journalists via Zoom to talk about how some of these issues factor into campaigns and candidates in the midterm elections. Mitch Perry covers politics and government for the Florida Phoenix, Ana Ceballos is state government reporter for the Miami Herald, and Sergio Bustos is USA Network Florida politics and enterprise editor. So access to abortion and reproductive rights are important issues for a lot of the people who completed the citizens' agenda of all ages. One respondent, Laura, wrote, My bodily autonomy being stripped from me really frightens me, so I hope that right to abortion remains intact. Maywish said, The concept that primarily women but also people of other genders may have to worry about following through on unintentional pregnancy as well as access to hormone treatments further down the line is a horrific concept in 2022 America. And a few respondents said there should be some restrictions. Joe, who identified themselves as a former foster care parent, noted, 
With financial hardship increasing and further restrictions on abortions, the number of children in the system is likely going to increase. So how are candidates talking about abortion? Anna, I want to start with you. Back in March, when details of the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade were leaked, Democrats were vowing to protect abortion rights. I'm wondering how that conversation has evolved since then. When that decision was made, it really was a bit of a earthquake, right, for, for politics, and not just in Florida, but across a, every single state in the nation. And Democrats were really, really hoping that this would be the issue that would really energize voters at the polls. And at the time, the primary hadn't even happened. So we were looking at two different candidates uh, who could have been facing DeSantis, including Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed, a woman who is portraying herself to be the most staunch pro-choice candidate in the entire race, right? Even when comparing herself to uh, Charlie Crist, she ended up losing the primary. And Chris is now the candidate for Democrats. And Chris's record on these on this specific issue has uh, fluctuated during uh, his time in politics in. 2006, for example, when he was running for governor, he cast himself as um, pro-life. He never went as far as to say that he would support the overturning of the U.S. Supreme Court Roe versus Wade decision. Um, and now he says that he's always supported access to abortion and he has promised to sign an executive order to protect that right. Compare that to DeSantis, right, the Republican candidate, and he has just this year signed into law uh, the state's 15-week abortion ban, which provides no exceptions for rape, incest, or the life of the mother. He has also very notably refused to publicly say, even when asked, whether he would support further abortion restrictions. He's currently focusing on like legal challenges to the current 15-week abortion ban, and he's not explaining or, or, or trying to promote that issue or his stance on that issue as much, even though top Republican legislative leaders who he would be working with in the legislature to pass these laws have indicated that they intend to pursue legislation that bans abortion or further restricts abortion in Florida. And what we do know is that DeSantis has promised that Florida will, quote unquote, uh, work to expand pro-life protections. But again, we don't really have specifics. So voters are coming in and voting if, if that's a single issue, the single issue that matters the most to them. DeSantis is not really quite being transparent as to exactly what he would support. Sergio, what, what's the subtext to the, to the lack of comment from the governor on abortion? Because he, he has talked a little bit about it, you know, back in the past, as as Anna noted, but he's been fairly uh, buttoned down on it uh, to date. So what do you read into that? Um, you know, I read like what most Republicans across the country are saying. It's, you know, we can talk about this after the election because it is a sensitive issue that um, and it's so divisive that I think it, it, it tends to want to draw people in. And it, it, you can't, you, as a Republican, you can't really necessarily win with this for those people that are on the fence. You know, Democrats want to say it's bringing out more women to register and presumably to vote. Now, that's true following the Roe v. Wade decision. But GOP voters, men and women, also signed up too 
So I think the Dems may be putting too much attention on this issue without addressing others, uh, mainly inflation in the economy. Mitch, what about candidates in the Tampa Bay region? Do you, do you hear that popping up on the campaign trail with some of the congressional uh, candidates or at the state level, some of those races? Definitely using it. I see here locally Janet Cruz in her race for state Senate. I see some of these House candidates uh, and congressional candidates like Eric Lynn, who's running for this open CD13 seat in Pinellas County. They're all talking about it. They're all emphasizing it on their television ads and trying to put Republicans on the defensive on it. Uh, in the state Senate race between Janet Cruz and Republican Jay Collins, Cruz is really trying to, to push this and talk about how Jay Collins wants to ban abortions outright. Uh, so they're, they're, they're using this a lot. Uh, I'm seeing here with candidates here in the Tampa Bay area, Democrats, that is. Well, let's talk about some of those other issues. And all of you have talked about inflation and the economy. Based on comments made to us and the citizens' agenda on WSF, there is a lot of economic anxiety amongst voters in 2022. People are worried about inflation, the cost of food, gas, healthcare, housing, other essentials. Here's a comment from Maywish who wrote, Inflation is a concern that touches almost every American. There are social security recipients on fixed incomes whose cost of living adjustments simply can't catch up to inflation. And on the flip side, there are working Americans with stagnant wages. And then they added, inner city workers who depend on public transportation, for example, are oftentimes split between the choice of a half-hour late bus versus a $10 Uber. Younger voters also worried about the economy they'll be inheriting in the future. Uh, one respondent over the age of 60 as well talked about age discrimination in hiring. So economic anxiety is an issue that cuts across generations. Anna, what are you hearing from Florida candidates about kitchen table issues like inflation, jobs, and the cost of living? I mean, what what are we not hearing, right? It seems like that has been one of the main issues that has been, that resonates really with not just a specific voting block, but across generations, across demographics, across uh, even, you know, where you're from, like what country you're from. It's certainly an issue that is resonating specifically in Florida, considering what we are seeing with affordable housing, property insurance, auto insurance, even, uh, and what DeSantis always likes to attack Chris with, right? The Biden, Biden inflation, trying to tie dem- all Democrats to that specific issue and saying, if you pretty much, if you vote Democrat, you're voting for this to continue on in your life. And with the specific policy issues, you know, we have seen Chris come out with proposals for affordable housing, for example, that are very detailed. Uh, He, for example, says that he wants to increase the affordable housing inventory. He wants to appoint a housing czar to place limits on corporations that uh, buy single family homes and convert them to rental properties. He also wants to, he, he has pledged to fully fund the affordable housing trust fund. The Sadowski Fund, right, which gets raided every year pretty much for other projects. Exactly. And and to that point, he said that he wants to repeal a law that was approved last year that permanently diverted money from that fund. So he's trying to paint himself as a candidate that is going to add protections to the affordable housing issue. Um, however, you know, he has a very big issue when it comes to messaging. He doesn't have as much money as the Sanders. He doesn't really have much money at all to message to like Floridians across the state to get that message across. If that is a very important issue, a, a very important pocketbook issue for voters. Affordable housing 
is a big deal for voters, as you've pointed out, and it's something that really came across in the folks who responded to our citizens' agenda. Here's what Malcolm wrote. I wish candidates knew that the prices for everything are incredibly high in my community and that many people are not are not able to afford basic necessities like housing and food. And then there's Chris who said, from a community standpoint, housing costs and availability are causing people to struggle and homelessness is not being addressed. We need a full-scale effort to fix these problems. And then there's this comment from John who wrote, I live in fear of not being able to find suitable housing in the future. Sergio, how does this debate about affordable housing in Florida fit into the national conversation and some of those federal policies that attempt to address affordable housing? You know, um, in the many years I've been reporting on politics and, and the like, I'm always surprised that the issue of affordable housing doesn't drive more people to the polls. I mean, if you really think about it, it's obviously a pocketbook issue. My theory is this, however, and, and this is where I'm going to push back against uh, maybe the con- conventional view, but more than like 70% of people own their own homes already. A majority of Americans own their homes and yeah, they we're paying mortgages. Even in this time right now, they're seeing their property values increase, which will allow people to have more, more equity in their homes. I'm not saying people don't care about the rest of us, but people do care about themselves first. And in that sense, maybe that's why the affordable housing issue doesn't drive more people to the polls, because it's clearly a major issue. And yet, we talk about it. We've been talking about it for years. That Sadowski uh, Trust Fund has been around for as long as I've been in Florida, and that's more than 15 years. And and it's always been kind of left by the wayside. And it's been clearly documented by the fine reporters of uh, in Florida newsrooms. And yet it doesn't stick. Nothing seems to be done about it. It just continues to do same path. And I just wonder it's because most people say, well, I own my own own home where I can afford where I can live. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the what it is, but it should be a major issue. And yet year in, election year in, election year out, it's it's not. Mitch, aside from the statewide candidates, Charlie Crist and, and Governor DeSantis, what are you hearing from uh, local candidates about affordable housing? Is it something that they, they talk about in stump speeches? You know, it's really interesting what Sergio said, because he's absolutely right. I was talking to a housing activist months ago um, as he was trying to get more people in Tampa to care about this issue. because It's a huge issue. It's a huge issue in our, our major cities uh, in Florida. And this activist I was talking about was saying, essentially, he was trying to build up more consensus. And that meant getting to some neighborhood association meetings where most of those people do own their homes. And it's not a driving issue for them because, yeah, I mean, you know, we don't want to say people are selfish, but, you know, that's why we talk about how inflation is such a, it affects everybody because it literally does matter how much money you're making. You're not hearing that at all in Tallahassee. In so many ways, you're not really hearing other than general terms, uh, legislators or, or people running, they want to deal with the housing situation. They want to deal with it. But in terms of specifics, not a lot going on there. Let me pivot for a moment and ask about immigration then, since this is a hot button issue. It's also rocketed to the top of the news cycle by the DeSantis administration claiming responsibility for flying migrants to Martha's Vineyard. And it's an issue that's important for our citizens' agenda participants too, some of whom note that it hits close to home since they themselves are immigrants. Anna, what does immigration policy look like at the state level and what are we hearing about it from candidates? Well, we're mostly hearing it from from DeSantis. He's made it a top priority issue. And 
he has been talking about this since before he was governor. So since 2018, he has made it the top issue. He started by promising that he was going to ban so-called sanctuary cities, that he was going to ensure that all public and private employers were using a federal system to ensure that uh, workers were legally allowed to work in the state. And now he has really escalated all these policies. He has spent millions of dollars in sending state law enforcement officers to help secure the Texas border. He has launched uh, strike forces that are meant to target potential human smuggling from, you know, from the border. And most recently, one that garnered, you know, drew national attention for weeks and weeks was a plan where he was recruiting asylum seekers, mostly from Venezuela in Texas, and sent them on planes to Martha's Vineyard as a way of poking at democratic states that have not been as tough on immigration as Republican candidates. That has surprisingly been a very controversial issue, but a fresh poll this morning by Telemundo and LX News actually showed that a majority of the 600 or so Hispanic voters that they interviewed, they supported DeSantis on how he executed that plan. And that support is most consistent with Cuban uh, voters, more so than other Hispanic voters like Colombians, Venezuelans, uh, Mexican-Americans, Central Americans. But it's still um, a very important voting block for DeSantis. And that is the most prominent voting block, at least for the Hispanic vote right in Miami-Dade County, which is one of the largest Democratic, the largest Democratic stronghold in the state. Hearst has, you know, mostly used it to talk about, again, that immigration is a federal issue at the end of the day, not a state issue. And it's mostly been to attack DeSantis on how he has been treating immigration and how it's inhumane and how it's not the way that we should be governing. Sergio, what stands out for you this election cycle about the conversation around immigration? You know, I don't think Democrats and Republicans for that matter too, but mostly Democrats, I don't think they understand the dynamics of Florida's diverse immigrant community. First of all, immigration is not an issue for the second largest voting bloc, Puerto Ricans, right? For Cubans, you know, for many years up until a few years ago, they were automatically allowed into the country. So immigration wasn't necessarily an issue. Um, and I think the, the the thing with immigration is everyone's right. You know, the Democrats are right that most immigrants are coming into the country, my family included, you know, wanted to come here for the opportunities, you know, the American dream. Uh, and yes, there are folks that are trying to come in uh, illegally. Uh, and so the Republicans are right. You can't have an open border per se, whatever that means. But the bottom line is, um, in this latest case, DeSantis capitalized on the immigration issue with these flights of Venezuelan migrants to Martha's Vineyard. And he frankly doesn't even need to do any more flights because he scored major political points against, if everyone believes he's going to run in 2024, against Joe Biden. So it's, it's, it was a win issue, win-win for, for DeSantis. And as Anna says, you know, no one, you know, it's not going to cost him at the polls at all. We've been speaking with Sergio Bustos, USA Network Florida Politics and Enterprise Editor, Mitch Perry, who covers politics and government for the Florida Phoenix, 
and Ana Ceballos, the state government reporter for the Miami Herald. And you can find all of our Democracy 2022 resources, including a voter's guide listing all the candidates, explainers on the constitutional amendments and local referendums on our website, wusfnews.org. WUSF reporters continue to report on the issues highlighted in the Citizens Agenda all the way through Election Day, and we'll have live coverage as the votes are tallied on November 8th. Be sure to join us. That's our show for this week. You can find us online at wusfnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. 